Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. I always say that I'm fortunate to represent America's most beautiful congressional district, California's great North Coast, from the Golden Gate Bridge to the Oregon border. And together, with positive discussions and open dialogue, I know we can make our community an even better place to call home. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Hi, everybody. This is Congressman Jared Huffman. Thrilled to be with you for the second episode of Off the Cuff, my podcast. Today's podcast features a great conversation I had with Bill McKibben. Bill is the co-founder of uh, a fantastic environmental organization, 350.org. He's also a university professor at Middlebury in Vermont, an author, uh, activist, and a great ally of mine uh, on a number of environmental issues in Congress. Foreign Policy recently named Bill to the list of the world's 100 most important global thinkers. Uh, That's an assessment I certainly uh, agree with wholeheartedly. And uh, we're going to talk to Bill also about a uh, high-profile victory in the last few weeks, the Dakota Access Pipeline. I had a chance to work with him and Native American groups on this important issue. Uh, We at least have won a temporary victory, and we're going to talk about that and much more as we head into our conversation with Bill McKibben starting right now. I want to welcome Bill McKibben as the uh, second guest on my Off the Cuff podcast. This is my holiday podcast, Bill. And uh, to my listeners, I know that you are well known as an author, an environmentalist, an activist. Uh, You're also a great ally of mine uh, in the fight for environmental protection and climate change. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you and to be able to say thanks in public for all the good work that you're doing. Well, I want to start with 350.org, this incredibly impactful organization that you are leading. Uh, How did it get started, and how did you settle on the name (laughs) 350.org? It's a good question, and at the time, uh, people were a little dubious whether that was a good name or not. We started this eight years ago here in Vermont, and the we was myself and seven undergraduates at Middlebury College, where I teach. I, I guess I'd kind of come to the conclusion that I'd been wrong for a long time about climate change. I wrote the first book about this subject back in 1989, and for a very long time, I thought that we were engaged in an argument. You know, I'm a writer Mm -hmm. and an academic, and so my theory was write more books, have more symposiums, publish more articles, and eventually the, the power of argument will convince our leaders to do the right thing. And it took me a good... 15 years, more, to really understand that we'd long since won the argument. The problem is we were actually in a fight, and the fight wasn't about data and about reason. The fight was about power and money, which most fights are. And the other side was the fossil fuel industry, the richest industry the world's ever seen. So we decided we'd need to get some power of our own. The only kind we could think of was the kind that came from movements. We needed a currency other than money, you know, the currency of passion and spirit and creativity of people's bodies on the line. 
So we started this thing, 350.org, and we took the name from our friend Jim Hansen, the greatest climate scientist of all time. He and his team had just published a paper saying that the maximum amount of safe amount of carbon in the atmosphere was 350 parts per million, a number, as you know, that we're already well north of. We passed 400 parts per million this year. We're going up about three parts per million per year. But we thought that people should take note of the fact that this was the most important number in the world. And we also chose it because we wanted to work globally. They don't call it global warming for nothing. And we figured that Arabic numerals would skip more lightly across linguistic boundaries than English words. Brilliant. And so it turned out to be. I think we think we've organized about 20,000 rallies and demonstrations now in every country on earth except uh, North Korea and and everywhere that number and the idea that we already have too much carbon in the atmosphere has proven very easy for people to comprehend. Well, congratulations uh, on your incredible success. And I think some of your most high-profile work has come in the last couple of years, uh, starting with the effort to stop the Keystone XL pipeline. I will just tell you, as a, a new member of Congress, uh, I knew, uh, obviously, I would be opposing that project, but I was almost resigned to the politics favoring President Obama and others ultimately caving in and support it. But you built such a movement and raised the profile and just made it politically impossible for that to happen. How did you do it? Well, I mean, we we didn't actually probably think that we didn't know if we could win when we started. Everybody told us there was no chance. Um, but our you know, job is to stand up for science. And this was actually another one of these cases where Jim Hansen played a crucial role. He put out a paper in the spring of 2011 calculating how much carbon was up there in the tar sands in Alberta. And it showed that if you burned all the economically recoverable oil up there just in that one big deposit in Alberta, that alone would be enough to take the world's atmospheric concentration of CO2 from its present 400 parts per million to about 540 parts per million. And uh, so it was one of, you know, a dozen places around the world where we just couldn't keep expanding. And we needed to make that case. Um, No one had heard of the pipeline then, uh, with the exception of the excellent indigenous organizers on both sides of the border who were fighting it, and and a handful of ranchers in Nebraska organized by our friend Jane Klebb and others at Bold Nebraska. So we decided that we would try and nationalize, indeed internationalize, this fight. And it was one of those cases where the use of civil disobedience was probably important to take something that no one had heard about and make it register on the public uh, ear. And so that summer, we organized what turned into the largest civil disobedience action about anything in this country for for a number of years. Uh, 1,200 and some people were arrested over the course of two weeks. Now, it was, it must be said, very civil, civil disobedience right. there in front of the White House. Everybody showed up wearing their Obama campaign buttons from 2008. I mean, we were saying, yes, we're you know sitting in here outside your house, but we're doing it, Mr. President, because we want you to 
make good on what you told us you wanted to do. And and we did our best to keep it on that kind of respectful level. It turned into a bigger thing than we'd expected. It turned into a four-year effort that became the, the biggest environmental battle in many, uh, many decades. The payoff was enormous. I mean, we may lose the fight over the Keystone Pipeline, at least temporarily. It's going to come back up with Trump. But the fact that Big Oil suffered this setback was enough to convince people to start fighting every frack well and coal mine and pipeline and coal port and everything else in the country. Uh, The head of the American Petroleum Institute said, you know, we have to somehow stop the keystoneization of everything we do. (laughs) And and, uh, that was music to my ears. Uh, You know, we've, we've done good work in this country, or at least some work on the demand side around energy and getting people to use less and the long, slow journey towards more fuel-efficient cars and things. But we also have to work around the demand side. This keep-it-in-the-ground effort is just as important. I want to talk to you about that, but a more recent victory, also extremely high profile against very long odds, was your uh, partnership with Native American tribes to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, talk a little bit about how you managed to pull this incredible coalition together and how uh, surprised you were when we finally got word a couple of weeks ago that the final answer from the White House was yes, they were withdrawing the, the key federal permit for the last leg of that pipeline to go forward. So in this case, we are completely acting in support of indigenous organizers who are the best organizers on this continent. Um and in this case, the work, the heavy lifting was all theirs, and it was very heavy lifting. Uh, this fight began six or eight months ago. People at the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation figured out that they were victims of one of the most egregious examples of environmental racism in modern times, this Dakota Access Pipeline carrying oil from the Bakken Shale in North Dakota was supposed to cross the Missouri River above Bismarck, but the white population of Bismarck pointed out that should it leak, their water supply would be spoiled. So we did what we've done for 400 years, just said, let's go put it where the Indians are, and proposed to cross the pipeline under the Missouri, right above the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Um, This did not go over well, and there was a, a remarkable, remarkable display of unity among Native Americans. Uh, there were 300 tribes eventually that gathered together at Standing Rock. Their flags were fluttering along the driveway down to mm-hmm. this beautiful encampment at the confluence of the Missouri and the Cannonball Rivers. It was a remarkable sight, Congressman. When you climbed the hill behind it, there, if you, you know, if you kind of kept the parking lot with the cars out of the out of your mind's eye, it looked like something out of the 1840s. Teepees and a hundred campfires, their smoke rising up in the morning sky, uh, and people there in prayer most of the time, ceremonies underway at all times, and remarkable, peaceful, nonviolent witness. The thing that really turned the fight, um, in this case, I think, were the images that came back. Um, protesters went out one day to try and block the desecration of ancestral grave sites, and those peaceful protesters were met by the 
energy company, uh, on whose board, it must be said, our new energy secretary, Rick Perry, sits, yes. and, and which Donald Trump is a stockholder, uh, uh, that company used its guards to set German shepherds on peaceful protesters. It was appalling. Yeah, they were dead ringers for the pictures that came out of Birmingham in 1963, yeah. except that these were in color, not black and white, and it was not African Americans, it was Native Americans. But I think when the White House saw those pictures, they struck a historical chord. And I think that that's maybe the moment when the White House began to think, huh, this really isn't either a fair or smart idea that we've got underway here. People kept up the pressure, and uh, people kept arriving in Dakotas in enormous numbers. People around the country and indeed around the world engaged in big acts of solidarity, uh, rallies, protests at the banks that were funding it. And word finally came that the president had, uh, and the Army Corps of Engineers had decided that they were not going to grant this permit, at least not without a heavy-duty environmental impact uh, statement. Um, again, one doesn't know what's going to happen after January 20th, but this is a remarkable victory, and one whose consequences are not merely environmental. It's an important point. I'm very proud of the fact that uh, a number of tribes, uh, dozens of constituents of mine, including a number of tribes, were there on the ground Absolutely. at Standing Rock. And I, I think that that unity won't fade. I think that, you know, time in Indian country is often measured in decades and centuries. I think this now is one of those names like Wounded Knee or Pine Ridge that will live in history. Indeed, I think it's, you know, I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, giving tours on the battle green uh, in the summer for my summer job. Uh, this place felt like hallowed ground, like Lexington Green to me, a place where uh, Americans will reflect on their history for a very long time. Amen. Well, great job. Uh, and of course, yeah, uh, a, a complete salute to the Native American tribes for their courage and uh, the dignity that they brought. Absolutely. They're amazing organizers. Yeah. So I want to uh, ask you about what people can do, Bill. You must be hearing this everywhere you go. I hear it everywhere I go in the aftermath of November 8th. Uh, there's been an a enormous wake-up call uh, to this country. People have sort of realized that just showing up to vote is not enough, that citizenship is going to require much more of them going forward if they're going to keep our country from taking some very unfortunate turns, and they want to be part uh, of doing something about it. Um, I'm certainly going to be working within Congress and um, keeping the lines of communication, the lines of activism open for them in every way I can, but uh, you and your work at 350.org uh, is perhaps an opportunity for people to get involved. Any other thoughts about uh, the answer to this question that we're all getting? What can we do? Well, I think we don't know all the answers yet to that question, because we don't know quite what the contours are going to be. We're moving into new territory for Americans. It's unfamiliar and in many ways scary and dark. We're using, you know, talking seriously about ideas like authoritarianism and fascism that we haven't had to talk about before. So I think that the first thing we've got to do, all of us, no matter what our particular issues are, is figure 
figure out how to protect the most vulnerable people out there. I have a feeling that climate activists are going to be spending a lot of February and March trying to keep undocumented immigrants from getting deported in front of their families. Um, Federal employees who have worked on the clean power plan uh, may be among the vulnerable people who need our protection. The the Energy Department transition team is apparently figuring out a blacklist. Yeah, have you ever seen anything like that? Uh, Well, I'm a tiny, like you, I'm a tiny bit too young to have lived through Joe McCarthy, but I gather that this is a little bit what it felt like. Um, You know, it'll be important for us to figure out how to protect those who need protecting. Uh, My guess is we're going to lose some battles uh, in the first six or eight months of the Trump administration. They come with all the power, despite having... (laughs) lost the election by three million votes. Um, And so it may be brutal for a while, but we will do everything we can to resist, and we will be ready to mount the counteroffensive as the time comes. Well, let's talk about that resistance and and the fight that we know is coming very quickly. And if there were any doubts about that, any any naive hopes that uh, Trump might... Uh, soften and govern in a different way than he campaigned. The uh, appointments of Scott Pruitt and Rex Tillerson and Rick Perry and others are immediately disabusing folks of that and and underscoring that the fight is coming and it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. Obviously, I've got to build coalitions of environmental champions within Congress. We're moving to do that. Uh, and our, our Senate firewall is going to be very critical. Uh, we'll need to have a number of, of Democratic senators that are willing to stand up and filibuster and use the rules of the Senate aggressively to prevent terrible things from happening. We'll need lawyers to file lawsuits and uh, stop overreaching. But you know, what, what else do you see coming uh, in this incredible resistance? Well, I think part of it's going to have to be in the streets with peaceful protests, too. I also think that you know, we're going to have to take a close look at some of our institutions. The Democratic Party clearly wasn't set up to succeed. Um, and I'm very glad to see uh, your colleague and uh, my old friend Keith Ellison yeah. there um, as a possible head of the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I think that for many of us in the activist world, it's a kind of last chance for the Democrats to prove that they're something more than the establishment idea that people rejected in this uh, last election. Um, um, But we need some bases like that that are places to really operate from uh, and and readouts to retreat to in the middle of the battle. So I hope that that becomes a powerful and strong one in a way that it hasn't been in the past. Yeah, Keith is terrific. But, you know, within the Democratic Party, um, I'm observing just from our caucus meetings, uh, there's a bit of a a rift, perhaps, where some feel that the answer uh, to reconnect with those working class voters is to to become less green, if you will. Uh, They point to things like Keystone, like Dakota Access, uh, as projects that would have brought jobs, and they feel like Democrats should be friendlier to those type of projects. And they're going to be pushing, uh, with some of them pushing within our caucus to uh, steer us away from strong environmental protections. I'm, of course, going to push back because I don't think that's the answer. Well, I think that the real, the real question there is uh, whether we're looking 
looking to the future or to the past, um, it's very clear that this is not where the future lies. It's very clear where the future does lie. I, I wrote a long piece this summer for the New Republic that talked about what it would be like if we actually took seriously the notion of a sort of World War II scale mobilization mm -hmm. around clean energy and climate change, which is, after all, the greatest threat that human beings have ever faced. The, the 21st century equivalent of the fight against European fascism that dominated the middle of the 20th century. And if we did it, I mean, and I tried to provide the numbers in somewhat excruciating detail, the cornucopia of jobs that it would produce uh, across the Rust Belt are remarkable. Uh, look what happened when we did this in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, we built largest factories in the yeah. world, and we built them in a matter of built months, the auto and they industry. were turning out you know, a bomber a day, a bomber an hour at the Willow Run facility. Surely we could do the same thing with solar panels and wind turbines. And then once we got them up, well, hell, uh, you know, the good thing about the sun and the wind is it comes to you for free. That's why Exxon hates them so much, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? It's a bad business model for them, and that's what this fight is about. So we will see. Let me ask you about the Keep It in the Ground movement. Uh, it's, it's an issue that I've been uh, really uh, honored to work with you on. I'm the, the lead author in the House on the Keep It in the Ground Act. Um, and I was pleased that we got several dozen co-sponsors on this audacious piece of legislation that attempts to completely phase out and shut down fossil fuel extraction from our public lands and off our shores. Uh, You've helped bring this idea forward, and you really helped breathe life into this movement because the science says we've got to keep 80% of the known fossil fuel reserves in the ground or else we can't get to 350 parts per million exactly in the atmosphere. Exactly right, Congressman. This, is, this is one's not even hard. This is just math. Uh, you know, at the bottom, climate change is just a big math problem. We know how much carbon we can burn and have some hope of staying below goal that we've all agreed on around the world of a two-degree rise in temperature and no more. We know how much carbon we can burn, and we know how much carbon we have available. It's five times as much as we can burn, so we better leave most of it underground. And the obvious place to start in this country is on federal land where we have control over that. And that's the, the point of the keep it in the ground stuff. Uh, clearly, this is not going to be happening in the next few years. Uh, today's announcement that um, uh, Mr. Zink was going to be taking over yeah. the Interior Department makes it clear that we'll go back even to leasing coal from federal lands, which makes not only no environmental sense, but no economic sense either. Right. But uh, this is no question the important conceptual uh, idea going forward. Right. Uh, if we can't keep it in the ground, we can't deal with climate change. Let me ask you a tough question. Do you see any opportunities for forward environmental progress under a Trump administration? Uh, I don't see many, except that I think that in many places, in California, chief among them, state and local leaders are going to take up a lot of the slack that will be left in Washington. And I mean, we kind of learned to do this a little bit under the George W. Bush administration, this is probably yeah. going to be an exaggerated case of that. Uh, so at the very least, there'll be some great work going on in those places. And, you know, California is now the sixth largest economy in the world, so it will be an important proof of concept to get it 
uh, uh, running as cleanly and greenly as possible, and there's a few of the rest of us in places like Vermont that'll help out. Yeah. A lot of people in the 2nd Congressional District of California will be right there with you, too, Bill. Let's hope that we organize like hell, and let's hope we catch some breaks from physics, and let's hope there's still some good work to be done four years hence. Amen. Uh, Well, Bill, uh, thanks for everything that you do. Uh, You're an absolute leader and a champion on all these issues. It's a pleasure for me to work with you, and it's been a real pleasure and an honor to have you on my podcast. Back at you. God bless. Take care. Take care. Yeah, before we launched off the cuff, we put out a request on Facebook for folks to submit questions that you'd like me to answer. And we're going to take a couple of those questions right now. The first one comes from Sam, who asks, can we block Trump's Supreme Court nominees? Thanks for the, the question, Sam. And uh, the, the answer, uh, unfortunately, uh, is one that I can't really uh, affect in the House of Representatives, the job of uh, advice and consent and whether determining whether nominees get confirmed uh, falls to the United States Senate. Uh, however, we have a few things working for us in that regard. Uh, the filibuster rule is still in effect for Supreme Court nominees. That means that Republicans will need to get around six or seven Democrats to vote with them to move a confirmation vote forward. So, uh, look, uh, I think the job of confirming nominees to the Supreme Court is a very serious one. It is exclusive to the United States Senate. Uh, I won't have a vote in that, neither will you, but we can all make a difference. We need to let our senators know what we think, make some noise, build some political pressure for them, and urge Democrats to hold firm against extremist uh, nominees who would attack our environmental laws, who would roll back voting rights, who would do harm to the rights of the LGBT community, to women's rights. We've got a lot at stake here, and it's worth fighting for. So even though I'm not part of that vote and you're not part of that vote. We need to do everything we can uh, to turn up the pressure and make sure our senators know that we're counting on them to do the right thing. The second question uh, is actually from several of you who are asking what will happen to your health care plans under the coming administration and in the 115th Congress, uh, given their promise to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Well, the first thing I want to tell you is not to panic. Uh, The Covered California Exchange is still running. It will be running at least all the way through this year, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably for some time after that. Uh, Look, President-elect Trump and uh, Republicans in Congress have promised that they're going to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, but actually doing that is a lot more complicated than making a campaign promise. I will say that uh, Mr. Trump's pick for the HHS secretary, uh, Representative Tom Price, is deeply troubling. It really does signal that Trump is serious about repealing the Affordable Care Act because Congressman Price has spent the last several years in the House uh, leading one of the most conservative caucuses. Uh, It's called the Republican Study Committee and being one of the most vocal and active opponents of the Affordable Care Act. He's introduced and actually passed through the House several attempts to repeal uh, Obamacare. Um, The replacement part is still very much a work in progress for Republicans, though. They still haven't come up with anything more than uh, a rough outline uh, to explain to the American people how they would avoid complete chaos, how they would um, protect people who have found insurance through the Affordable Care Act, 
what they would do to try to keep the provisions of this law that have become extremely popular. Uh, We'll see what they come up with in that regard, but it's going to take some time. So stay tuned. This is an important issue. It's going to be coming early in the next Congress, starting in January, uh, and I will make sure to keep you informed about what congressional Republicans are proposing and what I'm doing uh, to stop our health care safety net from being eroded and compromised. All right, folks, that's it for this podcast. I want to wish you all happy holidays. If you have ideas, questions for future podcasts, I hope you'll send them to me at huffmanpodcast at gmail.com. Until then, we'll see you next time. Take care. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.